A new era is unraveling before us, and conversation, data, and action are our only hope. Join us to learn together about the future of cities and how entrepreneurs are approaching our present-day challenges. The goal of this podcast is to unite real estate lovers, technology adopters, environment enthusiasts, and creative thinkers that are working toward achieving greater and fair collaboration for all. Come sit with us and discover how investing in these key initiatives improves our built environment, the public discourse, and climate change. We examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. Hi, this is your host, Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to talk to and learn from Jonathan Lane, Assistant Vice President at New York City's Economic Development Corporation, New York City's primary public sector engine for inclusive economic growth and diversification. At NYC EDC, Jonathan oversees Urban Tech NYC, a nearly $10 million industry development portfolio to grow and strengthen the urban technology and smart cities industry in New York City by providing piloting, space, networks, capital, and more. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, he has also led part of EDC's long-term economic recovery planning to leverage EDC's industry development portfolio to create a more just, equitable, and resilient economy. Jonathan holds a master's in public administration from Harvard, an MBA from MIT, and a bachelor's in finance from Southern Methodist University. Hi, John. Where does this podcast find you? Uh, I'm currently in New York City. I have been in New York since the quarantine began with some uh, kind of like brief intermissions. But, you know, since the public sector is working on the economic recovery, uh, well, the recovery, I guess, across a number of different verticals, you know, I've, I, I think it's really important for us to kind of see it out and stick it through and, and be here uh, just like everyone else is here um, to experience the realities on the ground. Definitely. That's great to hear you're uh, still in New York City. Cannot uh, let the boat uh, sink Definitely. And uh, it seems like the recovery is actually uh, slowly but surely uh, getting there. So, uh, John, let's start by diving into your multi-sectoral entrepreneurial journey, which I find fascinating. I mean, you started in the nonprofit world, then onto the venture capital uh, world, then currently to in the public sector. Yeah, I guess my I, I've always kind of worked in this like I guess I would call it like a a quasi public kind of space. It's it's just been within this like subset of or I guess like kind of in the Venn diagram, the space between the public sector, the nonprofit sector, and the private sector. Um, so I spent four years doing international development with the Peace Corps, which is technically a public sector agency that operates a little bit more like a grassroots nonprofit, just kind of operating at global scale. Um, and then when I came back to the United States, decided I really wanted to focus on urban development, which I think in some ways was just a scale up of the kind of work that I was doing at a much smaller scale in Latin America. And so I, I had the opportunity to take a tri-sector internship, try before you buy, test the waters, et cetera. So I spent a summer with uh, Root Capital, which again, kind of in this quasi-public space, they're a nonprofit which provides impact finance for agricultural development in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think they may have actually expanded beyond that at this point. Um, and then I spent a summer with the EDC, where I where I am now. And then uh, I spent my final summer. This was a three-year grad school program, so there were there were in fact opportunities for all three. You know, spent a summer with uh, Fifth Wall Ventures in Los Angeles. Uh, which is, you know, it's a venture capital firm, definitely on the private sector side of things. But equally, the work that they do 
is around reimagining the built environment, right? It's technologies and innovations for the built world, which as fate would have it is precisely the kind of work that I'm doing at EDC. Uh, so I think that's, that's kind of, I guess, the, the short version of the arc that has led me to working at EDC, which is itself not quite a public agency. It's considered quasi-public, again, kind of at this weird liminal space between sectors. Very interesting. I mean, it, it sounds like it, it gives you a, a well-rounded first-hand experience in, in key sectors of society, or at least seeing it from different angles, right? You know, from directly working with communities, both locally and abroad, to uh, learning how the investors of new startups and initiatives uh, strategize, right? To being now involved uh, in the planning and improving of the biggest city in the country. That's a great, uh, well-rounded perspective. So uh, specifically now the New York City Economic Development Corporation, uh, what is its mission currently? You know, what is its uh, raison d'être, reason of being? Uh, so the EDC was created, I guess it was under the Lindsay administration. Uh, and part of the thinking was to create an entity that could serve as a sort of real estate holding company for the city of New York's publicly owned assets. Those are assets that belong to the city and then be able to actively manage those real estate assets in order to provide a secondary source of revenue for the city, which could then be reinvested back into the economy. That is, I guess, in short, precisely what we do today. Um, we have kind of, I guess, three main verticals. One is uh, we serve in this traditional role as asset managers, so kind of landlords for the city of New York. We have 66 million square feet of real estate assets across the city. Um, to put that in perspective, you know, the largest single real estate footprint or kind of single owner uh, within the city of New York, I believe, is for NATO, and they have about 30 million square feet of real estate. So this is a, you know, this is an incredibly vast and diverse portfolio. So we actively manage those assets in order to generate revenues. With those revenues, with that surplus, we then reinvest that back into the economy in a couple different ways. One is place-based. So if you think about capital projects, if you think about urban planning, if you even think about transit operations, right, the, the New York City ferry, it's, it's a lot of things that are specifically focused on neighborhoods and communities and how we can make those neighborhoods stronger and more resilient. And then on the, uh, I guess, the second way that we reinvest our revenues from our assets is on the industry development side. So thinking about not necessarily place-based per se, it's a little bit more place agnostic, um, but thinking about how we can diversify New York City's economic base. And much of that stemmed from 2008, when I think there was a collective aha moment, realizing that financial services and real estate accounted for upwards of, you know, at that time, it could have been 75 or 80% of our tax base. So, you know, incredibly profoundly important for our city's economy, but that created existential risk, right? A little bit of portfolio theory, and you know that you need to have a little bit more diversification, especially in a moment when in 2008, financial services and real estate were the two industries that happened to be hit the hardest. Um, so since then, we've been investing in a number of different ways, both in terms of legacy industries that we believe are strategically important uh, for New York City, thinking about manufacturing, thinking about fashion, thinking about media and entertainment, but then also investing in emerging sectors uh, that we think have a high potential for growth in New York City, as well as kind of industries or sectors where we could play some kind of catalytic role. Maybe germane to this conversation, but thinking about things like real estate technology, you know, recognizing that we have an incredibly vast base of real estate assets. If you think about real estate tech, it's taking something that is an existing 
industry, I mean, a multi-trillion dollar industry in New York City alone, and then starting to both equip it and to modernize and transform the way that those assets are used, uh, but then also create kind of a, a growth cluster, making New York City the landing pad for prop tech startups. Like we want this to be the center of gravity uh, when you are thinking about an idea where you know that you can come and take advantage of the ideas and the innovators and the academic institutions and the networks, et cetera. So I guess that's a that's a little snapshot of what it is that DDC does. No, sounds like a quite simple mission. I mean, I don't know what you guys are so busy about. Honestly. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it's really yeah, impressive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very it's very straightforward. It's it's pretty you know the it's it's pretty impressive how you know r running a city uh, you know I'm sure every company founder, every business owner, every community leader really uh, feels the weight of of what they are uh, tasked with, but just running New York City. Uh, is is really a whole different uh, ball game. Let's talk about uh, specifically all in New York City, which is the campaign to uh, quote revitalize the city and show New Yorkers and the rest of the world that as we reemerge and rebuild, uh, that the city's businesses, communities, and residents can work to make New York City even stronger and more equitable than before. Uh, I personally love it because it sounds like the new Nike or Adidas commercial, all in NYC catchy, very hashtag, hashtagable. But uh, what's the plan of action behind this uh, promising campaign? Yeah. So I guess a little bit of context. All In NYC is an initiative of NYC and Company, uh, which is the organization that is heavily involved in marketing New York City, especially from the angle of, especially but not limited to uh, tourism. And so, you know, Tourism is an incredibly important industry here in New York City. COVID has, you know, <laughs> among a number of different sectors and industries, uh, COVID has hit the transportation and travel and hospitality sectors in unique ways. That's a general rule of which there are many exceptions. But I think when NYC and Co. went out to the market looking for a partner uh, with whom they could design a Kind of a tourism marketing strategy that really encompassed the feeling of New York City. You know, both how do we bring people back? How do we encourage people to consider coming back to New York City and helping to support a lot of the tourism businesses that are vital components of our economy? But also, how do we how do we create something? And I say we. This is very much the them side of things. You know, it's it, it's about how do How can the city, how can New York City and company uh, create something that is also aspirational for the people that already live here, um, that really speaks to what we all know and love about the city, why it is that we moved here, you know, perhaps despite the density, perhaps despite the subway crowding, perhaps despite the, you know, sometimes the smelly trash in summer. It's like we all came here for something really, really powerful. And so that campaign is really about how we can you know, bring people back to New York City that don't necessarily live here, as well as making sure that the people that do live here are inspired uh, by the same grit and the same resilience that defines New York City, right? We have, it's called All In NYC because no matter what it is that you are looking for, it is here in New York City. It is all in, it is all somewhere within the five boroughs, no matter what your niche interest is, no matter what kind of, you know, particular food or dish or music or hobby, it is here in the five boroughs. 
but it also speaks to the fact that this is an all hands on deck kind of moment. You know, lots of organizations, including with the All In campaign, Aruladen, who is the uh, the woman owned global award winning design agency, you know, offered its support pro bono as part of an open creative brief that was issued in collaboration with the Clio Awards to create this All In NYC campaign. And I think that speaks to this all in moment, right? It's also a call to action that says we need to, the city cannot do this on its own. We all have to put some kind of skin in the game uh, in order to make this work and in order to get us back to uh, the kind of city that we all know and love and moved here for. Definitely. I mean, I think it's uh, it's something that is contagious, but uh, in, a, in a good way <laughs> in this case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I read recently that I think United Airlines was going to start offering uh, immediate COVID tests from flights between London to New York. I mean, I'm not saying uh, correlation equals causation, but definitely showing that the strength, that excitement and exciting, it starts by exciting the local communities, right, to bring everyone back. I mean, tourism in New York City have been riding together for a while, and it, it does feel like there's every block in New York City, there's someone around the world that is dying to to visit there for per, their particular reason. And and those were also the reasons that it brought uh, everyone here originally, right? So uh, it's it's really, I think the, the messaging is, is important, and especially in the era of social media, having a, a catchy... It starts with a catchy slogan and, you know, the people behind it. But I think uh, it's definitely the, a step in the right direction, right? Uh, you know, so many people right now have been uh, either furloughed or fired or can go back to work in hospitality that I think, uh, you know, taking care of, of those in, in the industries is going to help bring the city back. In terms of uh, uh, New York City post-COVID, which I, you know, I, I don't understand why people talk about the new normal when we still haven't gotten over the pandemic yet. And how can we, how can we make New York City a place where individuals from all backgrounds can have a life worth living and thrive with their families now, you know, focusing more on the, on the New Yorkers and the locals? How can, you know, the concept of resiliency, how can New York City uh, become more resilient? I, I might separate those questions out because I think there's some overlap between them, um, but they're both pretty weighty topics in and of themselves. I think on the resilient side of things, right? If, if you think about something like GDP, uh, it's really focused on growth. If you look at you know, the way that traditionally economic development impact is measured, it looks at jobs, right? Jobs created, growth created. It's all kind of this... Um, I don't want to say it's necessarily inflationary, but it is something that is, you know, it is growing, growing, growing until it's not, not, not. And then in the not phase, that's where like desperate measures and significant interventions are needed in order to pick things up. One of the things that I think we've been thinking a whole lot about, I mean, resilience is not a new concept to New York City. Uh, this is a city, if you look back historically, and I will only go back as far as like 1970s, but you know, this is like the the Gerald Ford to New York City drop dead fiscal crisis of the 1970s and into the 1980s. Um, this is the city that was quite literally ground zero for the attacks and the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Uh, this is in large part, as I was talking about earlier, the place where the Great Recession began. And in 2012, Superstorm Sandy uh, interestingly enough, kind of 
three or four days before the election came through New York City and, and New Jersey. Um, so we have dealt with, and now we have the COVID pandemic where New York City was the first city of its size to experience the, the kind of spike that we had. I guess in, in terms of resilience, it's thinking about, okay, growth and job creation are excellent goals, but maybe, maybe we can expand our thinking to not just think about the growth cycle and then figure it all out when things come crashing down. Maybe there are ways that we can strategically reinvest back into the economy that help develop our capacity to bounce back quicker in the future. Or or for the down cycles, and I don't just mean economic down cycles, but you know, when things start to when bad things happen, whether it is a health pandemic or it is, you know, a an environment where foot traffic or in-office and in-classroom environments is no longer tenable, or it's a supply chain crisis, or it's, you know, it's the threat of talent flight. How, it is, how is it that we can strategically reinvest back into the economy in ways that help us to build our economic resiliency to minimize the dips in the future and or prepare the private sector, the nonprofit sector, even the public sector to more quickly rebound and snap into action without necessarily depending on, you know, in this case, the federal government, which has been a challenge. Um, and in this case, also the city government, which is fiscally constrained. We have to maintain a balanced budget. And we are now in, you know, fiscal crisis mode, which is fully public information. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, thinking, yeah, I mean, just concept of resiliency, like depending on, on industry cyclicalities it was one thing, but I feel thanks to the stock market and like the way some of the incentives in the business community are aligned, we're plagued with a uh, short-termism and always thinking about the next quarter, the next quarter. I mean, thinking how New York City can really come out of this stronger, I think we, we really need to develop, like you're saying, long-term recovery plans to ensure that we can rebuild in, in ways that are more inclusive, equitable, and just, right? And, and this will certainly require significant strategies and investments to reduce inequality, combat racial and economic segregation, shift uh, funding to community-based organizations, develop more affordable housing. I mean, this is stuff that we've been hearing in the headlines for a while now, but this is the only way to truly provide greater economic and social opportunity and uh, strengthen everyone, including uh, you know the less advantaged neighborhoods and communities to uh, overcome uh, the next crisis or overcome the next uh, downturns because they they will always come, right? The, the question is, how do we prepare for them and how do we mitigate uh, the damages that it causes? Yeah, and I think maybe something just quickly to add on to that. It's about more than the cyclicality of stock markets because there are a number of people that don't necessarily even participate in the stock market because they, they may not even necessarily have a bank account, better yet, an investment account or a 401k. It's really about how do we build our city's long-term resiliency on a number of different fronts. One of those, for instance, which isn't strictly economic, is thinking about health resiliency, right? So one of the things that uh, has been announced publicly by EDC is the Pandemic Response Lab. And what that is designed to do is increase our testing capacity so that we can more quickly and safely reopen New York City businesses and recognizing that, you know, they're in order to get to the level that we need in order to to do that, we had to make investments that expand the capacity. But ultimately, that puts us into the right position, not just for this immediate moment, but it also starts to, A, grow our healthcare 
and life sciences sector, right? It's providing this kind of like R&D and lab capacity that we need as a long-term investment. Uh, but it also prepares us for, you know, future crises. If this happens again in some way, shape, or form, uh, whether it's a volcano that springs up in the middle of Vermont, or it's, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be, uh, the next H1N1, who knows, we are prepared for those moments. And we're using this economic recovery in order to promote that for the future as well. Definitely. I mean, and we're going to talk a bit later about uh, big tech and life sciences being uh, big investors in New York City. Uh, but I think uh, you're spot on in terms of the, the healthcare safety net, if you will. I was reading, you know, because we both enjoy the historical background. I was reading uh, about the lessons from the Spanish flu back in 1918 and how Europe and America got very different lessons out of it. And, you know, it, you can understand that it started in Europe and Europe was devastated after the First World War. And uh, it, so it is understandable that you come out of it with different lessons. But basically, that's when universal healthcare came about in, in Europe, right? Uh, Soviet Union and other countries. And in America, we decided that universal healthcare maybe wasn't for us. Uh, so if this pandemic now doesn't convince uh, the doubters uh, that they, in order to have a, a resilient society, in order to have healthy citizens, we need safety nets around health and we cannot be, you know, our, our economics reality month to month cannot be depending on paying medical bills that we might not be able to afford. On Tangent, instead of sponsored ads, we have Stimulus, where we dedicate a minute of airtime to amplify an entrepreneur building a business that's making a difference. Today on Stimulus, we have student entrepreneur Ilan Orhel and his lifestyle brand Fusion 100, which he created and launched from his dorm while attending the University of Maryland Business School. Ilan's and Fusion 100's mission to inspire people to become the best versions of yourself is something we all strive for every day. How can you better yourself today? Wear a damn mask! Fusion 100 has designed comfortable and reusable face masks available for only $7.99, shipping worldwide. Visit fusion100co.com, that's F-U-S-I-O-N-1-0-0-C-O.com to get a mask and support this young entrepreneur making a difference in the e-commerce world and get 15% off for the whole catalog by using the discount code TANGENT. That's fusion100co.com, discount code T-A-N-G-E-N-T. If you are an entrepreneur or small business owner who would like to be featured in our stimulus section, email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And now back with our friend of Tangent. So moving on, there's a, there's been a, a lot of headlines about a NYC's tax base escaping to Florida and other uh, lower uh, taxation localities. And this is not a trend that started with COVID. I mean, before COVID, uh, there was ne net negative uh, migration from New York City in terms of how many people moved here every year to how many people were leaving. But uh, is it overblown or should we be worried about uh, this in terms of New York City's uh, attraction? I So I, I certainly have heard and read all of these headlines and articles. In fact, when I think that was back in March, one of the very first things as, as we were kind of starting to analyze, you know, what are the key issues that we need to be paying attention to most? 
uh, I think that was one of the things that I had really been thinking about is, you know, what happens if hashtag talent played? I think there are at least a couple different things at play here. One of them is something that, you know, there was a Bloomberg article in September of this year. I think it was September 2nd. Uh, which actually talks a lot about this this question of like the urban exodus and and people leaving New York and is this the end and all of the doomsday. I think what we are seeing in practice, what a lot of data seems to suggest is that the people that are moving outside of the city, if they are doing so on a permanent basis, they're precisely the kind of people that at this age, at this stage in their careers, and with the number of dependents that they have, they are highly likely to have made that decision anyway. So, you know, it's people call it, uh, and I'm, I, I'm not necessarily using precise data here, so uh, don't quote me, but in general, it's this kind of like, you know, 30s, 30s to 40s, newlyweds, or they have their first kid. Uh, they were already starting to think about like, maybe moving to the suburbs, you know, the White Plains, the Darians, the, the Hartfords, the Nassau counties, they were already thinking about moving to the suburbs. And this is just something that accelerated that decision. You know, they just wanted to get ahead of that. It was all the conditions were already there. Um, and this is what happens historically. It's just a much slower roll, right? It happens kind of a sprinkling, but then you consolidate that into a short period of time. And that provides enough fodder for the kind of headlines that you were talking about. So I don't necessarily know that the, the data is metting out the idea that there is like a, a mass exodus that compared to a counterfactual wouldn't already have happened. Now, are people temporarily out of the city? Yes, there are absolutely people that are, you know, they moved in with their parents in Texas or they're getting a group house with a pod in Utah or in New Hampshire, whatever the case may be. But I have an intuition that those people are going to come back. And that leads to my second point, which is New York City is New York City is New York City is New York City is New York City. There is a certain momentum, there is a certain inertia that happens when you are a city of this size and scale. People want to be, I mean, they don't want to be in close proximity to other people at the current moment, but people, you know, this is the place to come if you have an idea or if you want to find ideas, right? The, the whole reason that cities exist is because of agglomeration economies. And what that essentially says in a really wonky way is, you know, there is a certain network effect in terms of like how many people you have, like the more people that you have, uh, one plus one does not equal two, it equals kind of, you know, 2.1 or 2.3. This is the place where people come to pursue new ideas, to find new ideas, to craft their, you know, professional career, uh, to really get the stamp of having come here and experience it. And also the fact that, you know, nightlife and uh, other kind of key components are currently on pause, but as soon as a vaccine is widely available and mass distributed, uh, I think it's going to be, there's a whole lot of sensor demand for those kinds of activities. And I think you're going to see things in terms of the, the culture and the dynamism, I think you're going to see things come back fairly quickly because this city is, this is not the first time that people are talking doomsday uh, and it probably won't be the last, but I think the data is suggesting that it's nothing to be concerned about. I, I would have to agree with you in terms of uh, new blood coming into the city and the people that are leaving were going to leave anyway. So it just sped up their decision making. But I think the you know new blood coming to the city after rent prices falling, I think is can always be a, a healthy uh, cycle to uh, 
re- reignite the sea. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it's been a painful transition for a lot, but I think in the long run, New York City is going to be as a resilient as ever. Um, now talking about digital resiliency and big tech, uh, let's go back a couple hundred years. New York City has always shined thanks to its immigration and its power for reinvention, right? First, it was colonized by the Dutch due to its strategic location and access to water, then became the industrial center of the world with manufacturing and trade. Later, the stock exchange and real estate took it to the 20th century. Now it seems like big tech could lead the city's next era, right? Could big tech be the next uh, evolution for the business center of the world? I want to say yes, no, and maybe. So, you know, classic bureaucratic diplomatic response, just making sure that I cover all three possible scenarios. But in reality, I, I think it is yes, no, and maybe. Yes, in that digital infrastructure is essential infrastructure. And I think we had, I don't think that we had looked at digital infrastructure quite the same way that we did after the COVID pandemic hit, right? All of a sudden we realized all of the different places that if they were not, if there was not digital infrastructure to connect them, whether it's a storefront or it's a classroom uh, or it's an office, if there was not the basic digital infrastructure in place, that connectivity, then those people are completely shut out from whatever it is that they were doing or have to do. And so, I think, yes, in the digital infrastructure is now seen in a very different way. I think the import of digital infrastructure and remote operations is going to be something that's a lot more important. So there are lots of opportunities there. I think no, in that many of the solutions that I have seen, I I don't necessarily want to call them overbuilt, but I think that tech is so interested and, and you know, certainly investors and venture capital and private equity is playing a meaningful role in this too. But I think that so many tech solutions are trying so hard to figure out how they can integrate artificial intelligence or IoT or something around blockchain or something around ML, just like inevitably shows up in every single pitch deck. When in reality, a lot of the solutions that I think are needed in this moment are low tech. They are simple, they are affordable, and they are effective. If For instance, New York City's restaurant industry is going to weather the winter if it is going to make it through with an open restaurant concept, which is so important for these businesses to continue operating, then they're not going to need an ML algorithm that like tells them, no, like they need some kind of simple, effective, affordable solution. Maybe that's heat towers. Maybe it's something else. Maybe, you know, Chicago just did an innovation campaign uh, around winter outdoor dining, uh, which I thought was super duper interesting, and I'd encourage anyone to take a look at. So, like, but those are those are design interventions. Those are low tech interventions, and I think tech is so obsessed with you know the sexy, the sophisticated, the like you know the things that require a master's in computer science from MIT or Stanford or wherever it is, uh, or CUNY. I think. Tech is going to be a a victim of its own hubris in some ways if it ignores the low tech opportunities in favor of the ones that are just, you know, making sure that AI or ML end up somewhere in your pitch deck. And I think the maybe there is I'm seeing a lot of tech and venture capital that is starting to get a lot more oriented toward policy priorities, stakeholder capitalism and equity issues. Tech and venture capital is certainly not a space 
that I think has historically done a really excellent job in terms of uh, gender equity, in terms of racial equity. Uh, when you look at the number of founders that are minority or women and kind of the broad gap between them. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I used to work at Fifth Wall uh, in Los Angeles. They recently became a B Corp, which is very much kind of in the vein of, of stakeholder capitalism. I think you're starting to see a lot more attention and activity around things like sustainability and energy efficiency, which is certainly pro-social and suggests that tech and venture capital, if they spend their intellectual capital in the right places, they spend their technological capital or financial capital, if they put their money where their mouth is, then they can have an incredible impact on making big changes for society, especially if they look deep within around equity issues and are able to bring in a true diversity of perspectives that makes their investment committee more powerful, that makes their pitch deck better informed, uh, that makes sure that they avoid the kinds of inequities that many tech startups can exacerbate rather than address. So yes, no, and maybe. I love the three perspectives. And yeah, you think uh, Occam's razor, I mean, low tech or the simpler solution sometimes is the best. And I was actually having a conversation earlier this week around voting and uh, how we can enable more people to vote. Naturally, you would think mobile voting could be uh, great and easier for everyone to vote. But I actually was thinking in terms of risk of uh, hacks and our are we prepared for with the the right cybersecurity elements? But actually, low tech, right? Let's uh, let's do whatever is is the easiest, and let's do whatever works best. Not necessarily whatever sounds the flashiest or whatever has the latest uh, tech buzzword. In terms of uh, that, we were talking earlier about New York City still attracting talent and big tech. You know, investing in a lot of infrastructure in the city, including. Facebook leasing the Farley building, Google buying Chelsea Market and adjacent properties, Amazon's nonstop activity in all five boroughs, including uh, signing the city's biggest ever warehouse in Queens and keep hiring for their uh, Empire State building office. I, I keep thinking about remote work, right? I think even though remote work seems pretty attractive right now, I wonder in the long run when we're actually feeling safe to come back to the office. Will remote work stay? And I think big tech's decision on remote work will impact a lot New York City, whether they insist or they create the, their spaces to motivate employees to come back or not. I actually don't know what to make of it yet. And I think it's going to depend a lot on big tech because the smaller companies, the smaller startups, the smaller business owners uh, will wait for big tech signal on, on remote work. And if I'm not mistaken... 30% of New York City's jobs can be performed remotely. Uh, that's not accounting for lack of loss of productivity and so on. But I would really want to see how how New York's how big tech keeps operating after summer 2021, which is when I think they said uh, they'll bring back their employees. Some of them. Yeah, I maybe just to to jump in on that point. I think. I mean, this is there's a little bit of kind of classic hype curve to a lot of this, right? I think when, when certain new technologies come out, then all of a sudden everybody is saying, this is the future. I mean, even when the internet came out, it was like, how does, you know, everybody needs to get a website, which is a good thing, but it was all about, you know, retail is dead, retail is dead, retail is dead. And then you had like Bonobos, uh, and then you had Chubbies, and you had Warby Parker and kind of all of these different brands 
that they realize that there are some things that are really like completely fine to do in an online environment, but it ultimately drifted back a little bit more towards the center, which is omni-channel tends to be the best solution. Sometimes it means starting brick and mortar and then having a digital presence. Sometimes it means starting as digitally native and then having a physical presence again, like the Warby Parkers, et cetera. But it's classic kind of thinking and absolutism in terms of like, oh, because work from home now exists, everyone is going to do it. And I think what we're going to find, because I am going back into the office one day a week right now, and I think the mayor has announced that 25% of the public city, the public sector workforce will be returning to office by December. I think what you'll find is that we're just getting sharper on what the what the actual value proposition of an in-office environment is. Doesn't mean that there is no value proposition anymore. Just like it didn't mean that there was no value proposition for brick and mortar retail. There is, but we had to rethink it. And I think that that is probably a good thing, especially in light of the fact that, you know, whether in the longer term it creates opportunities to address other affordability issues. Uh, which I think is, you know, both from commercial and retail rents and from residential rents, uh, that has been a big problem with enormous equity impacts in New York City. Um, so I don't know if us, I, I think it's probably a good thing that we are sharpening that value proposition and perhaps no visibility whatsoever, but maybe it will also allow us to reconsider the ways that we have been using office buildings that can then address some of our other affordability questions. Definitely. I mean, I think the the other question right now is that companies may have a preference or bosses may have a preference on uh, working remotely or working in office. But right now, a lot of companies are in, in survival mode and looking at their bottom line uh, very closely. And, and I just can't see, you know, besides firing employees and, and lowering their uh, salary base, uh, decreasing their real estate footprint seems like uh, for for many of them, the ones that have the possibility, I, I just see it as an obvious, at least temporarily measure if they want to keep uh, operating. So yeah, in the long run, we I think we're going to hear a lot of conversations around ex employee experience in the, in the workplace. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, maybe it's going to be more uh, geared towards uh, deeper collaboration work, deeper creative work that you need to be face-to-face. But uh, it's possible that many of them will shift to uh, remote work or will have satellite offices that uh, where people can uh, get together in the local community and not have to commute. But uh, interesting to see how it plays out. Let's talk about racial and social justice. If there's an evident conclusion coming out of COVID and this summer's equality movement awakening is that in a society without a healthcare safety net and without enough uh, affordable housing, then... Uh, Majorly, Blacks and Latinos are the ones who uh, suffer the most. And in most cases, they're also the, the essential workers we depend on. And they end up being the most vulnerable and they will always get the short end of the stick. So particularly for New York City and New Yorkers, where, where does the root of the solution uh, start for a better future for all? Well, the root of the solution, quite simply, is anti-racism. And that is a, a long-term change effort that is a systems level effort that is changing a lot of you know legacy policies that have been put in place or even more recent policies that were well intentioned but were not explicitly anti-racist um, that ended up kind of falling into the same traps as explicitly racist policies in the past so I, I think 
establishing an anti-racist base is that's that's really where some of the roots are. But I think when we think about economic development in particular, one of I think the the most readily the most readily accessible metrics, if not always like you know super easy to calculate, is around the racial wealth gap. And you look at uh, you know just using that as kind of a a metric uh, around which we can design policies, programs, et cetera, in order to remedy this like major injustice. Um, I think that to me is the place to start in terms of where we might be able to focus. And again, the most important thing is developing a base of like anti-racism. But as an economic development organization, I think thinking about not just job creation, but also wealth creation, especially in the context of addressing the racial wealth gap, uh, is, you know, it has a lot of potential to remedy a lot of the issues that you're seeing, whether that is access to the kinds of capital that they need in order to start a business or enough money to be able to afford quality health insurance, uh, or it's the money to be able to pay for childcare so that they can go to a job uh, for eight hours a day that pays them X amount of money, you know, being able to actually pursue upward mobility opportunities. I think that's one thing that for a long time kind of has been limited to the academic realm. And I think as a practice in economic development, thinking explicitly around the goal of like bridging the racial wealth gap, closing the racial wealth gap, to me is a really exciting place to orient our activities. And it also helps us to start to shift some of that paradigm towards something that is more explicitly anti-racist if we are to accomplish that goal. Yeah, I'm actually currently listening to the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And uh, it's just uh, unbelievable how economic zoning and racial segregation played a, a big role in how and where our homes have been uh, developed and where neighborhoods have sprawled, right? And when you talk about the racial wealth gap, uh, you know, most of the wealth from previous generations started by by home ownership. And if it was coded into laws of, uh, you know, mortgages and the insurance uh, that we are to leave uh, blacks and Latinos out of this uh, immense wealth generator, then uh, definitely it, it's going to take a few generations to get back there. But hopefully we uh, are more proactive about uh, empowering everyone to be able to have a, a life with dignity and be able to just afford pro and provide for their families. I would push back a little bit in terms of like, yes, like dignity is great, but dignity is the absolute lowest bar that we could possibly be imagining. This to me is about creating wealth and creating upward mobility, creating like, you know, personal agency, the ability to say like, this is the kind of job that I want to have. This is the kind of career that I want to have. Just being able to choose, like being able to choose your own lifestyle, your own career, rather than saying like, I have to go into these low wage jobs because that is the only real opportunity that I have because, you know, they can't start their own business. Uh, they may not necessarily have the, you know, the, the networks to be able to access some of these opportunities. I think the goal is really about justice and equity more than just dignity. And I think it's about upward mobility. Right? We are not successful unless people are actually able to move from a bottom quintile by income to, you know, with this level of stratification, it's just very, very challenging for 
for anyone to live with, you know, like the, the beyond just their basic needs, the, I think having like the freedom of, of choice, the, the question of agency, just being able to exist free of harm, uh, free of disproportionate health impacts, free of disproportionate financial impacts and recruitment impacts. You know, I, I think we're striving toward upward mobility. You said it best, and uh, I agree that uh, that's where we should be uh, aiming for. And if, uh, you know, there's still some out there that don't believe or don't understand that there's a structural racism uh, in our society, I uh, encourage you to start by watching The 13th on Netflix. Uh, that's a good start. And if you're more of the book type, the, the color of law is definitely providing some very uh, interesting perspectives into understanding how where we come from and how we can uh, improve. Last but not least, I want to get you into the discomfort zone, John, and uh, I want to challenge you to share an experience that you had in the past that helped you change your mind about about a previously believed idea. Um, you know, I I guess at risk of seeming a little bit cliche, but I think the you know the COVID pandemic when it first hit, I guess where I was in the kind of work that I was doing at EDC, I was you know my work life balance was certainly uh, I would say it was it was not great. But I think part of the kind of like work culture within New York City is like always be hustling, right? It is always be pushing as hard as you can to to climb, to, you know, get the next big thing, um, to be the very best that you can be, which in a lot of cases in New York City work culture and elsewhere, but I think uniquely, like runs uniquely deep in New York City you know, it's just this culture of like investing everything that you have into who you are as a professional. And I think I was like very much in that space when COVID hit. And there was a period of time where, you know, I think everyone was trying to get their bearings. Everyone was trying to make sense of what was happening. And we, you know, we would go through moments where it would just be an all out sprint to, you know, compile as much information as we could in a very short period of time so that we could Kind of take action. And then in other points, it was like, we need to, you know, we need to wait on something else. There's kind of like a bottleneck or a barrier. And then you slow way down. And I think that those periods were really, really, really tough for me because I was so used to just like going for, you know, 12 or 14 hours a day, just giving it absolutely everything that I could. And I think that that moment, what I've realized, especially the more that I thought about this question of economic resiliency, is it has to start with personal resiliency, right? Zooming down to a, a very human level. To what extent am, was I prepared to move slowly as well as moving quickly? I think being successful requires dexterity in both of those environments. And so I think part of what I part of what I've realized is in giving myself slack capacity in kind of an operations vernacular. By giving myself some slack capacity, by not necessarily fully utilizing my capacity up to 100% or even up to 95%, what it's done is it's made me more productive, incidentally, because I am not living with this like constant sense of stress and this like need to always be churning and working and thinking. 
it has actually created space that allows me to do the deeper, more productive thought and kind of live in my professional shoes in a much more sustainable way. So I, I guess like the kind of like speed up, slow down, speed up, slow down that I found really, really, really challenging then became a catalyst for, you know, still being able to be an ambitious young professional, but also have my human side kind of come to the fore uh, and establish some sense of work-life balance that isn't a, you know, I'm just going to chill and I'm going to relax or I'm not going to, you know, work past a certain hour. It actually becomes about creating enough space for you to think more deeply and be more productive. Definitely. No, I, I really like this concept of a uh, personal resiliency. I mean, I think it was a, uh, it was a contagious thing, especially in cities like New York. Uh, I remember when I first moved here after living in Tel Aviv, living in Costa Rica and other places, the first question people would ask you here is before even your name is, what do you do? What do you do? And like, that's a, you know, I like, like, that's a lot of the reason why people move here from outside and we we like that the hustle environment like mentality but it's uh you know where, where do you draw the line like you i i people say we have short memories as humans and once we have a vaccine or a, a cure we'll uh go back to our normal lives because we liked what we were doing but i i'm highly skeptical that you know even though there's been overblown predictions about how we're never going back to the office I think that's also not true, but I think there's some good quality, healthy lessons that we've gotten out of uh, COVID uh, at the personal level when it comes to just balancing. People talk about this concept of work-life balance, and I think we haven't, especially in the digital smartphone era, we haven't had that. We've had a work-life integration, right? You're working, you're responding from uh, your cell phone e emails, past hours, like, you know, you're you're working also over WhatsApp or SMS, like there's just a work-life integration going on. And I think COVID, you know, one of the silver linings is uh, what you're pointing out. So thanks for uh, bringing that up for our listeners. What advice, uh, John, would you give to a 20-year-old starting their career in the public sector today? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think, again, I've, I, I work in the public sector currently, but I started my career, I guess, kind of in the public sector, but then it's kind of like dabbled throughout. I, I think that something that I find, and I will apply this to both the private sector and the public sector, I think that the kind of the, there's not a whole lot of translational capacity in many cases between like what the public sector wants and what the private sector wants, or it's just assumed that it's like zero sum game, right? That these kind of, these are competing goals that are mutually exclusive. I, I think it is really, it has been really, really important and definitional for my career to be able to, uh, you know, converse in the public sector context as well as the private sector context. So as, you know, I, I don't want to encourage my 20-year-old self to just pursue the shiniest objects in the room in terms of, you know, going to the very best consulting or finance and banking or, you know, the, the sexiest tech firm of, of the time. Uh, because I, I also don't think it's great to just kind of pursue those shiny object opportunities. But I do think that it's important to do the kind of exploration between the public, private, and nonprofit sector. At very least, like, sure, you may, you may know very clearly what it is that you're passionate about, but understanding the incentives that exist at the other side of the table is more than an academic exercise. 
Like you may, you may be able to take a class on it and learn all about it. You may be able to talk to someone, they can tell you what their incentives are, but actually working towards those goals, working towards those KPIs, understanding what drives those KPIs, then allows you to create interventions on one side or the other that builds in, that bakes in those perspectives from the outset, instead of launching something like a gig economy platform, which makes money for shareholders at the expense of drivers, for instance, or you know, making a public policy intervention, which is all about just like sticking it to the sticking it to the private sector, you know, making them like pay their fair share. But I I guess it's just it becomes about how do we translate? And what I like about EDC and what I like about my career so far is that having had experiences that are a little bit more kind of leaning into discomfort or, you know, outside of my traditional wheelhouse or outside of my expected career trajectory, I think those opportunities have given me the ability to speak multiple languages, which is incredibly important to be able to speak to someone, as you know, kind of being from Costa Rica, being able to speak to someone in their own language is much different from just being able to speak to them. And I think that's the that's the the key takeaway. I love that. And and I think if we can get rid of that zero sum mentality in society and in business and in the public sector and everywhere, I think it will be one of the best uh, lessons coming out of COVID and out of this uh, conversation. Where can our listeners find you and follow the work that you and the C- uh, NYC EDC are, are doing? Yeah. So, I mean, the best place by far is obviously the EDC website. That's edc.nyc. Something that I think might be a, a great opportunity, especially for startups. We just recently launched Neighborhood Challenge, which the website is also neighborhoodchallenge.nyc. And that's basically an opportunity to do some matchmaking between uh, the kinds of, you know, the innovators and the people that have ideas for what we should be doing. And they're shouting at the, you know, the top of their lungs that we need to be doing X or Y or Z with the people that need ideas in order to stay afloat in this moment. Um, and so I think that that creates an, you know, the, the neighborhood challenge platform creates an opportunity both for those people that have ideas and those people that need ideas to kind of like bring them together, provide the connective tissue and help, you know, harness all of the intellectual capital in New York City in order to be able to, you know, work together again, this kind of all in mentality. So I would point people to that as well. Obviously LinkedIn, would be a great place to follow. Um, but yeah. Great. Uh, we'll make sure to add that in the episode description. Uh, John, thank you very much for this conversation and for your insights into uh, what New York City is up to in, during and post-COVID. Thanks again. Absolutely. Happy to, uh, happy to have chatted. That is it for today. This has been your Tangent host, Edward Cohen. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening and remember, stay curious and always be learning.